As much as anyone I know, Pauline understands the complexity of what we have lost by removing prairies from Iowa's landscape and what we have to gain by reestablishing native prairie plants, something that I think you all are going to be doing in your own way, as I understand. Pauline is here to close today's symposium because she recently wrote a chapter for a book that I edited, Tending Iowa's Land. Some of you may have seen this, Tending Iowa's Land. I have to look for the, make sure I get the title right, Pathways to a Sustainable Future. This book is the first and only treatise to consider all of Iowa's environmental problems under one cover. It's an edited book written by nearly 30 authors. It describes Iowa's problems with our degraded and eroding soil, water pollution and increased flooding, climate change, and loss of biological diversity and all of the ecosystem services that go along with that, such as pollination and soil formation. The book includes both science-based chapters and essays by today's problem solvers, all told in a storytelling format that makes the material more accessive, accessible, more, I hope, not, I hope not more excessive, more accessible and appealing. Positive solutions to our problems are stressed throughout, creating visions for a more resilient and sustainable Iowa. A major theme that emerges from the book is that by addressing one of our environmental problems, we start to heal all the other ones. For example, if you, in your yard or wherever, plant native prairies or native prairie plants, you will, in a small but still meaningful way, be returning critical habitat for pollinators, soaking up more water that will run into your soil and thus lessen water pollution and flooding, addressing climate change, and rebuilding the soil. Planting natives is a win-win-win-win-win activity. All told, this book, Tending Iowa's Land, is upbeat, energetic, and action-oriented. It aims to be entertaining and educational. It feeds hope and fuels active engagement. Prairie Lights was kind enough to bring an bring uh, copies over here for purchase. I think that they're setting up right now just outside the door, so I encourage you to take a look at the book if you'd like. <laughs> Pauline will now read from her chapter in that book and discuss the ideas in there. Her chapter is titled, Knitting It All Back Together, Iowa's Tall Grass Prairie. Pauline. Great symposium, huh? New people, new plants, new techniques. I'm inspired. Yeah. But all those plants that we love came from somewhere, right? Let's explore that a bit. In fact, let's become time travelers, you and I, in this place that we know of as Iowa. As we travel back a couple of centuries, farms, cities, and roads melt away. The mantle of soil grows thicker. Rivers become shallower, clearer, and more winding. Gullies disappear. Yes, most of those gullies out there aren't natural. Here, native grasslands with incredibly rich plant and animal diversity seem to stretch endlessly in all directions. 
and it becomes easy to lose one's bearings. Standing amidst the raucous prairie in spring, one might easily feel small and overwhelmed with the immensity of the natural world. But you are clearly not alone. Flocks of migrating passenger pigeons are so dense they blot out sunlight as they pass overhead. Prairie chickens whirl wildly in misty morning courtship rituals, booming eerily. Ooh, that's my prairie chicken impersonation. Meadowlarks, dick thistles, bobolinks seem to be singing their hearts out. As travelers from another time, many things surprise or even shock us. The expansiveness of the unbroken prairie with its glorious native flora. The sheer numbers of native animals. The absence of exotic species. And the utter lack of all things wild. In fact, nothing is wild because nothing is out of place. All things belong. Wild only has meaning in the context of a culture bent on domestication, taming the landscape. This is a natural landscape. Our native plants crucially depend on the microbiota, bacteria, fungi, and insects um, in the soil to help them grow, survive, and communicate with one another. With our time travel x-ray vision, we can see vast intertwined networks of fungi connecting plants underground. As these underground organisms work, bits of roots are broken down to form soil. Meanwhile, above ground, myriad plant species grow and are served by and serve countless species an incredible abundance of invertebrates including pollinators who allow seeds to develop and be dispersed. Species, seeds of species like prairie flax and prairie petunia are flung out of their pods like popcorn, popping popcorn, while others, like milkweeds and willows, are borne aloft on the wind in little fluffs that include the seed, landing where the wind takes them. Still others, like shooting star, tip out little pitchers when shaken by the wind or an animal passing by. Other seeds simply drop. Seeds contain energy, so the tiny embryos within can germinate and grow when conditions are right, so there's a lot of stored energy there. The valuable resources sought after by animals who eat them to sustain their own bodies or those of their offspring. Some seeds are hiding places for insects so that they can more safely hatch from egg to larvae. All life forms in the natural landscape ultimately depend on one another and on a functioning natural system. And ecological health, function, and resiliency depend largely on natural processes like pollination, hydrology, and fire. In the cool, moist springtime, big blue stem, Indian grass, and switchgrass wait for more heat to begin their growth spurts. But species like needlegrass with its sharp needle and thread-like seeds and grass-like plants like sedges with their triangular stems already thrive. The vernal prairie is spangled with a dizzying array of colorful wildflowers blooming at full tilt. Can you name some of those prairie species you can think of? What are some of the prairie spring sea species that you love? Just name one. Columbine, okay, that's a good, that's a good woodland savanna species. What's another one? What? 
Ironweed? That'll come a little later. How about Shooting Star? Yeah, Prairie Violet, Birdfoot Violet, Wood Betony, Prairie Smoke. The list goes on and on. Every two weeks, more species bloom, overtopping the previous suite in a race for sunlight, until finally, in late summer, species like Big Blue Stem, as tall as 12 feet high, are in their full glory. Their objective is to perpetuate the species and to survive for another, se for another season by making seeds and sending energy to roots. In the process, new roots grow and old bits of roots die and decompose, banking carbon in the soil. That's why it's banked in the soil. Unless that soil is disturbed, that stays there. That's carbon banking in this interconnected and self-replicating system. Bison thunder across the prairie and elk browse beneath branches of centurion oaks. Badgers, butterflies, bees, butterfly milkweeds, and blazing stars throughout the season, everything seems busy. As frost comes, plants grow dormant and dry. This is when native people, native people ignite the landscape. They burn to provide good forage for their wild herds of bison and elk and to clear away the dead grass, shrubs, and trees. And in exchange for invigorating the prairie and savanna, they gain all the provisions they need to live. The bright sunlight essential for prairie to flourish is assured by fire. And humans, a key species of prairie, provide fire. Humans are a key species of prairie. That's you, and that's me. As we follow the thread of time back to the present, we witness the unraveling of the natural world. Farms, towns, and cities and roads are built. Streams and rivers are straightened and deepened. Water, the lifeblood of the system, becomes brown and laden with sediment and is quickly shunted off the land as refuse. Native people, bison and elk, are expelled and passenger pigeons are hunted to extinction. Fire is suppressed and thus can no longer renew the remaining bits of the natural system. Prairie remnants thus become overgrown with trees and wither. Oak savannas and woodland remnants are now considered forests and fire is excluded, allowing fire-sensitive trees to proliferate between the oaks, causing dark, dense shade this seals the demise of savanna, for without bright light, oaks cannot regenerate, and the sun-loving mid to late-season wildflowers languish. Only spring flowers can bloom in these dark and dying savannas during the seasonal pulse of light before the trees leaf out, like right now. These savannas are now globally imperiled. So you know, acorns can germinate, in, in pretty dark conditions, but they cannot grow into a tree. So if you go out into an oak woodland, it was, and it's really, the canopy is filled in and it's close to 100% canopy, that's a very sick, that's a very sick woodland because it's dying, it's kind of like a zombie. It will never, um, it's going away. The oaks will die, um, the understory that should be there, and again, there should be wildflowers from first spring until fall frost. So 
you can begin to read the landscape if you can see that situation happening. I knew none of this growing up in Northwest Iowa and Pocahontas. I was a child black, of black soil and tall prairie. And I knew the first because, you know, I grew up in farm town. I worked in the fields. But evidence of prairie was pretty scarce, even if I would have known how to recognize it. But one day my grandpa asked me if I would drive him to the nearby city of Manson to buy him clothing to fit his ample build. I was 16 and I just got my driver's license, so yes, Grandpa, I'll drive you there. And so on the way back, he said, did you ever go to that place they never plowed? I said, no. And off we headed to Kelso Prairie, a rare, deep, black soil prairie Standing together on that gravel road, dividing the ancient prairie before us from the modern cornfield behind, my grandfather in age and wisdom, and I in youth and naivete, I knew he wanted me to see something. And I tried, but all I saw was a bunch of weeds. <laughs> Grandpa came from a different time when there were prairie chickens still booming on that landscape and more prairie was still around. In the span of two generations, so much was lost. But Grandpa had planted a seed in me. He had shown me the essence of prairie in Pocahontas County. I just needed to learn to see it. Only a tenth of a percent of original prairie remains to represent Iowa's formerly vast and incredibly complex native ecosystems and much of what remains is depauperate and diversity. One-tenth of one percent. So if you have a dollar and you take a penny and then you take a tenth of that penny, that's kind of gives, gives you a little bit more sense about the proportion that has been lost. This is extreme simplification of the landscape for every species removed, every natural process interrupted, each prairie parcel erased, the ecosystem that supports us and all other species becomes simpler and less functional. The services formerly provided by prairie now become our responsibility to maintain, a nearly impossible task without the ecological wisdom of native ecosystems. The consequences of this simplification can be imagined by thinking of a complex and beautiful piece of music. Remove one note throughout the song, and the effect is not not strongly noticed. Remove another, and it sounds a bit off. Continued removal of notes eventually renders the music unrecognizable and perhaps even disturbing. The song is simplified and no longer works as the musical composition it was designed to be. Our landscape has likewise been simplified. We will never truly understand all that has been lost. We can, however, reverse the trend of degradation if we learn to read the landscape and establish ourselves as thoughtful, healing, and sustaining members of a recovering natural landscape, like planting prairie in your yard or woodland species. Remnant prairies do exist, some preserved and some managed. Others are scattered about and neglected, but all pale in comparison to the intact natural landscape they once belonged to.
Their edges are raw and frayed, ecologically frayed from a constant onslaught of invasive species, erosion, pesticide damage, and other degrading forces. Most may be too small to persist long term, but these remnants are so important. They are our Rosetta Stones to help us decode what prairie is and what it needs to recover. They are our teachers because they retain the essence of the ancient natural landscape. As ecologist Frank Egler once said, ecosystems are not more complicated than you think, they're more complicated than you can think. How true. These remnants of ecosystems are precious because here we learn about ecological function, species interactions, and the roles we must play to restore balance to our troubled natural and cultural landscapes. These remnants teach us to see. But it is not enough to simply cherish native remnants. Encroaching trees must be removed, invasive species controlled, and frequent fire reinstated. In this process of actively restoring remnants, we restore our place as a species of native prairie and savanna. You know, in the 1960s, conservationists decided that prairies should be preserved, and the understanding and the wisdom of that day was they would take a prairie, they would put a fence around it, and they would say, all right, let's keep all of us out because we've done enough damage already. We'll let nature be and take its course. And of course, what happened was it became overgrown with trees and shrubs and invasives because people are a part of the native systems and native peoples lit fires. It wasn't all about lightning. They lit fires annually, usually in the dormant season. And without anyone to light the fires for these little remnant prairies, they weren't gonna, they weren't gonna live, they weren't gonna persist. In the 1970s and 80s, there were a few prairie plantings that started being done in, in the Midwest. Most of those used very aggressive cultivars or um, selections of grass species and threw in perhaps a few species of forbs, three or five. Oftentimes it was just the grass. This is not prairie, but we learn on the backs of those who come before us. In the 1990s, this was a decade of incredible expansion of efforts aimed at understanding how to recover and renew native prairie and savanna. In 1991, Walnut Creek National Wildlife Refuge, now Neil Smith National Wildlife Refuge, started with a goal to emulate the historic natural condition on 8,600 acres of land. This was never tried before at this scale and on this scope. I was hired as the first biologist for this landmark project. There were remnant prairies that were small, degraded, and scattered about on this 8,600 acres. Large tracts of farmland needed to be planted with seed that matched local conditions of the refuge. At Walnut Creek National Wildlife Refuge, use of local ecotype seed was deemed critical. That is, collecting seed from remnants that were relatively nearby and mostly on the same landform, so that the conditions, the pressures that forged the genetic wisdom, if you will, in these species would be similar to what was originally at Walnut Creek National Wildlife Refuge two, three hundred years ago. 
we tried to think like a prairie, to see, to find seed that would genetically know what to do with this land and with other planted species. We used remnants as models for the project to know what species belonged there. So we wanted to have the appropriate species diversity and not some weird things from, you know, out in Nebraska or somewhere weird to us um, on our landscape, things that didn't fit in. And we wanted to have your, the appropriate genetic diversity. So with all of that, we had to learn all the techniques. We were, we were kind of writing the playbook in a way about how to do the plantings. It was like knitting the natural landscape together again with these plantings. As the refuge's first biologist, I was charged with guiding the initial ecological restoration efforts. Many people were skeptical because conservationists had previously focused on remnants. Plantings were considered second rate. A project like this was simply and utterly untried, daunting, and frankly, more than just a little bit weird. And in a state formerly dominated by prairie with more than 99.9% .9 gone, no tracks of typical prairie remained to, that had any size to them. But if Iowa is arguably the most ecologically decimated state in the Union, doesn't it make sense to make it be the center of prairie rebirth for us to understand how to do prairie plantings well? Ecological restoration done well could enlarge our prairie remnants, perhaps making them viable long term. It might also be our last best chance at preserving a vestige of Iowa's natural heritage in perpetuity. This refuge became a proving ground, an experiment to see the degree to which ecological restoration could be accomplished on former, land, on former farmland. People were broadly invited to lend perspective and to help solve problems because this project was bigger than us. It needed a community. Volunteers, staff, teachers, students, researchers, seed producers, and practitioners learned to find local remnants and harvest seed. <clears throat> Cut trees and remove invasive species, becoming a new people of the land, working together and re rejoicing together. The refuge became a touchstone, inspiring others to find and restore remnants or to reconstruct prairie themselves. Today, windblown prairie once again runs wild in endless waves to the horizon. Coyotes, beaver, bobcats, herds of bison and elk, 200 species of birds, and hundreds of species of native plants now call these thousands of acres of refuge land home. Early efforts to introduce the regal fritillary butterfly worked, and now this rare butterfly floats above flowers in August, cruising for mates. Monarch butterflies abound, and rare pollinators like the rusty patched bumblebee have been spotted. Where did those come from? Do they come from those degraded remnants somehow surviving there? Or do they fly in from somewhere? There are so many mysteries. As we expected, controlling invasive species remains our biggest challenge, and we need to introduce and, and nurture more species. But already some interesting things are happening. Research has demonstrated that soil health and water quality are improving incrementally, and some plantings are beginning to look and function almost like a prairie remnant, which is so exciting to me. 
This ecological restoration is still in its infancy because restoring resilience and function <clears throat> requires ongoing learning, persistence, effort, and time. After all, the refuge is only a few decades into a thousand-year project. People become passionate about the natural world when they become part of it. I think we have an innate need for this sort of elemental connection, but exposure is often difficult. My friend and volunteer seed collector, Rayford Ratcliffe, wisely summed it up, saying, Pauline, in order to understand prayer, you have to get your back up again it. And he was right. You don't fall in love with prairie by standing on the edge and looking in. You have to get into it and let it get into you. It's easy to feel helpless when confronting the staggering loss of Iowa's native landscape, but we have tremendous power to help reverse that loss. On the 30 acres of land where I live, I have chosen to ecologically restore prairie and savanna despite the land's initial state of profound degradation. I have found deep peace seeing wildflowers and pollinators return and knowing that at least here, rain that falls on the land goes into the soil and roots are slowly banking soil carbon. The fires I've lit, the seeds I've sown, the invasives I've helped remove fulfill my part of a sacred bond I feel with the land. In return, I claim home. And if my neighbor installed prairie strips on his cropland in order to hold the soil and farm chemicals on his field and provide habitat for pollinators and wildlife, then the water draining onto my land and traveling downstream would be cleaner. Our combined efforts would be amplified. I imagine in Iowa with prairie plantings and farmland, gardens, roadsides, schoolyards, Iowans without their own land might volunteer to work on a conservation lands or perhaps they would celebrate their natural heritage by singing, dancing, creating art, advocating, or just quietly walking through prairies and learning to see them. And so my advice to you, dear listeners, go out and get your back up against some prairie. Thank you. And planet.